All right, into the Federalist era. This is going to be from 1789 to 1801. So we're going to talk about some domestic issues first. So America circa 1790. Uh, you know, population was nearly 4 million in 1790. It was doubling just about every 25 years. About 90% of Americans are going to live on farms. So they're out there in the rural areas. Relatively few large towns existed. Now you would have places like Philadelphia, New York City, Boston, Charleston, and Baltimore. But other than that, most of them were just your small rural communities. Around 5% of the entire population lived east of the Allegheny Mountains. So you have these new states of Kentucky, which we get in 1792, Tennessee in 1796, and Ohio finally in 1803. Now the finances of the of the new nation were very precarious. The public debt was enormous because we discussed <clears throat> that we we're still trying to pay back France. And prior to the Constitution, there was no actual way to tax for revenue. Uh, paper money is pretty much worthless, both state and nationally. And even though it was worthless, it was still in heavy circulation. <clears throat> But a dollar would be worth like 50 cents, you know, something around in that. There were still these challenges by both Britain and Spain that are going to threaten the nation's unity. Now we get our first president, President George Washington, and he makes his own administration. He was unanimously elected president by the Electoral College in 1789, and he was the only president nominee ever to be honored unanimously. Now, many believe Congress was willing to give the presidency power due to Washington's immense respectability. He took the oath of office on April 30th of 1789 in the temporary capital in New York City. And John Adams was sworn in as his vice president. Now, his cabinet. It set this precedent of, it. obviously it's the first cabinet, but the reason for it is he wanted to surround himself with experts. So he consulted these cabinet members or these department heads in order to make decisions. Now, the original Constitution obviously does not mention a cabinet, but the cabinet has since become an integral part of the presidency. So our first cabinet had the Secretary of State, which was Thomas Jefferson, the Secretary of the Treasury, which was Alexander Hamilton, the Secretary of War, Henry Knox, and the Attorney General, Edmund Randolph. He became the fourth major cabinet member after after the passage of the Judiciary Act of 1789. The cabinet was characterized by a political feud between Hamilton and Jefferson. Now, one of the first priorities of the new government was the Bill of Rights. You had the Anti-Federalists who sharply criticized the Constitution for not having one, and many of the states had ratified under the condition that one be included. Now, the amendments to the Constitution could be achieved in two different ways. First, a new constitutional convention was requested by two-thirds of the states. This has never happened. Or two-thirds vote by both houses of Congress and ratification by three-fourths of the states. This has happened on 18 separate occasions, which means we now have 27 amendments in total. Federalists feared another constitutional convention might actually reverse their victory. James Madison drafted and submitted 12 amendments to Congress. Madison's draft was based largely on George Mason's Bill of Rights in Virginia. Now, the Bill of Rights, they are the first 10 amendments of the Constitution. They were adopted in 1781, and these are known as the basics or the basic rights of man. They were supposed to provide safeguard for our core principles. So, Amendment 1, 
You had freedom of speech, religion, press, petition, and assembly. Amendment 2 was the right to bear arms to form an orderly militia. That's part that uh, a lot of people like to leave off, the orderly militia. Uh, Amendment 3 was no quartering of troops, so they couldn't be arbitrarily quartered on people. Like, you couldn't just be like, hey, you're going to keep this person. Uh, Number 4 was against any unreasonable search and seizure. Number five is that you are guaranteed certain rights when you're on trial, like your, you know, your trial before a jury. Number six was your right to a fair and speedy trial when it came to criminal cases. Number seven was a right to a trial in civic cases, civic, civil cases. And these are lawsuits against other, other citizens. So, you know, this doesn't have to do with like capital murder and things like that. Number eight had to do with excessive fines and cruel and unusual punishments. All of those are forbidden. Number nine was the People's Amendment, meaning you had other rights besides those who were specifically put into the Constitution. And then number ten are states' rights, meaning that the powers that were not given to the federal government were reserved for the states and the people. Now, the Judiciary Act of 1789 is going to organize the Supreme Court with a Chief Justice, John Jay, and five associates. It will organize the federal, district, and circuit courts, and it established the office of the Attorney General to head the Department of Justice. <clears throat> now, the political leaders in the 1790s are going to take a variety of positions on issues like the relationship between the national government and the states, economic policy, foreign policy, and the balance between liberty and order. This is going to lead to the formation of political parties, most significantly, the Federalists, and they are going to be led by Alexander Hamilton and the Democratic Republican Party, or the Anti-Federalists, which will be led by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. Now, let's get into Hamilton's financial plan. So, the economic goals. First off, there was the report on public credit that was put out in 1790. He planned to shape fiscal policies on the administration to favor wealthier groups. In return, the wealthy would lend the government monetary and moral support. So basically, the idea was that prosperity would trickle down to the masses. This was some. This was also used in uh, the Reaganomics, the trickle-down effect. It doesn't work. Chaz is doing a trickle-down thing, but it's not working. If only I had video. Moving on. All right, this became the basis for assumption of states' debts and funding... But again, that doesn't work. All right, the report on manufacturers. This is going to come out in 1791. This is still Hamilton. He advocated the promotion of a factory system in the United States so the nation could exploit its natural resources and strengthen its capitalism. And it was the basis for the tariff component in his financial plan. His plan contained five major components. The first was funding at par. So the purpose was to bolster national credit. He believed that the government couldn't borrow money without investor confidence. And government bonds had depreciated to 10 or 15 cents on the dollar since the new treasury was believed incapable of paying off its obligations. So it couldn't pay pay people back, so they didn't want to buy it. He urged Congress to pay off the entire national debt by funding at par all government bonds incurred by the state during the Revolutionary War. 
Debts would be paid at face value plus accumulated interest. Hamilton was bitterly criticized for not alerting original bondholders to the plan as they sold their bonds for a fraction of their value. The second point is the assumption of state debts. Hamilton urged Congress to assume the state's debts. His ulterior motive was to further obligate the states to the federal government. He believed the national debt was a blessing that would cement the Union. So states with huge debts would favor the plan, especially those like Massachusetts, and states with less debt or no remaining debt hated being taxed to pay someone else's debt. This was uh, one of those like Virginia was especially upset. And there was a North-South struggle that ensued over assumption. Like, who would assume the debt? The compromise was achieved in 1790. The federal government would assume all state debts, and the South would get the new federal district, now the District of Columbia. Pierre L'Enfant, that's L-apostrophe-E-N-F-A-N-T, created a map plan for the new city. Benjamin Banneker, an African-American who surveyed the land, land Washington, D.C., was to be built on. And uh, just for funsies, you might want to look up Benjamin Banneker. He's actually kind of an interesting character to read about. That's uh, B-A-N-N-E-K-E-R. You never know, it might be um, a project. <clears throat> wink, wink, nod, nod. All right, Madison and Jefferson were instrumental in helping set up the compromise. Jefferson later lamented he was outwitted by Hamilton. All right, the third point, tariffs or customs duties, became the major source of revenue for paying off the debt. Tariff revenues depended on a healthy foreign trade. So we get the Revenue Act of 1789 that opposed, imposed an 8% tariff on dutable imports. First tariff law in the U.S. history passed at the national level, and the secondary goal was to help protect infant industries or new industries of the United States. Okay, the fourth part, excise taxes. 1791, Congress passed an excise tax on whiskey. So the backcountry distillers were most affected by this seven cent per gallon tax. Even by today's standard, that's a healthy tax. Just saying. Uh, Arkansas tax is like eight and a half percent, if you know, to put that in perspective. Poor roads made grain transportation particularly or practical only by horseback, which severely hampered the profit potential of this cash crop. Now, whiskey in the backcountry flowed so freely in this region, it was often used as money. So it's like you're taxing your money, which, you know, sounds like income tax to me, but that's the point. Hamilton was not overly concerned with the protests from the frontier. Most had been anti-federalist in sentiment during the ratification debate anyway, so he didn't care because, remember, he was federalist. All right, the fifth part is the National Bank, and this was the most important Jefferson versus Hamilton issue. Yeah, the foundation of Hamilton's financial plan was the Bank of the United States. Washington requested written opinions from Jefferson and Hamilton regarding the validity of such a bank. Now, the provisions for this, the government would be a major stockholder despite the bank being a private corporation. One-fifth of members of its board of directors would be government appointees. The federal treasury would deposit its surplus revenues in the bank, and the federal government would have a convenient safe. Federal funds would stimulate business by remaining in the circulation, and the government would print urgently needed paper money, providing a stable national currency. Now, Jefferson and Madison strongly opposed the bank. The state's writers feared liberties would be jeopardized by a huge central bank. 
uh, money interest would benefit at the expense of farmers. State banks would not be able to compete against these federal banks. And the federal government did eventually enjoy a monopoly of surplus funds because of this. The strict construction, and this was the strict interpretation of the Constitution. Jefferson believed the Constitution did not stipulate creation of a national bank. And that's where you get into those, um, that elastic clause or that necessary and proper clause. When it has to do with Congress. Uh, Hamilton argued the Constitution would support a plan for a national bank. This loose construction is where Hamilton urged a broad interpretation of the Constitution, and it set a precedent for enormous federal powers, like I said, that elastic clause, that necessary and proper clause, because it provided for passing any laws that were necessary and proper to carry out the powers that were put into Congress, that were given to them specifically. These are also known as Congress's implied powers. He argued the bank would be necessary to store revenues from taxes and the regulation of trade, which both are stated in the Constitution as the job of the legislature. Washington reluctantly signed the bank measure into law in 1791, and the charter was for 20 years. The old North and South friction is going to surface again over this. The bank favored commercial and financial centers in the North, and the agricultural South saw their, their state banks go into decline. The bank issue sparked the open public split between Hamilton and Jefferson. Then we get into the Whiskey Rebellion of 1794. Southwestern Pennsylvania backcountry farmers were hard hit by Hamilton's excise tax. The Whiskey Boys posed a major challenge to the new national government. Uh, they torched buildings. They tarred and feathered revenue officers. This should sound a little familiar. They chased government supporters from the region. Some even talked of succession from the United States. So basically, tax collections came to a halt. Washington summoned the militia of several states, resulting in a creation of a 13,000-man army. 13,000-man army to go up against some backwood moonshiners, basically. I mean, come on. Anyway, uh, Washington accompanied the troops part of the way, and Hamilton led them the rest of the way. When the troops reached the hills of western Pennsylvania, the Whiskey Boys dispersed without any casualties. Washington later pardoned the two convicted participants to heal the rift. Now, the significance of this was the federal government showed it could ensure domestic tranquility, but it also showed some... Um, <clears throat> I would say some major, like, micromanaging here. Because, like I said, 13,000-man army to take down this itty bitty little tiny rebellion. Moving on. This is also going to prove that another Shays rebellion, Shays-type rebellion, could not succeed under the new Constitution. Uh, Jeffersonians condemned the act as a brutal display of force and gained increasingly more support from ordinary farmers. Hamilton's financial plan eventually became the cornerstone of America's financial system. It strengthened the government, government politically as well as financially, and it established, established a strong... Sorry, I'm having some trouble, apparently. It established a strong public credit. And then that loose construction, it paved the way for, paved the way for an increase of federal power. The report on manufacturers anticipated the Industrial Revolution in the United States, also known as the Second Industrial Revolution, and the Jeffersonian opposition emerged due to <clears throat> encroachments upon states' rights. 
Then we get into the new party system. So the founding fathers in 1787 did not envision the existence of political parties. They organized opposition, seemed disloyal, and against the spirit of national unity. So no national political party had ever existed in America before Washington's administration. Factions had existed only over, se- over like special issues. So the Tories and the Whigs, Federalists and Anti-Federalists, but factions were not parties. Jefferson and Madison first organized their opposition to Hamilton only in Congress and did not anticipate creating a permanent popular party. As their opposition to Hamilton grew, political parties emerged. So, you know, it's like this whole issue, we end up with a two-party system. And that should make live happy a little bit. It's a little Hamilton reference. So, by ni- or sorry, not 19, by 1792-1793, there are going to be two well-defined groups, the Hamiltonian Federalists and the Jeffersonian Republicans. So, our two-party system is largely owed to the clash between Hamilton and Jefferson. Now, be careful not to confuse the Federalists of the 1790s with the Federalists who supported the Constitution in the late 1780s. They're not the same. Uh, So, basically, in the late 1780s, Madison wrote part of the Constitution and Jefferson supported it, yet they were not Federalists in the 1790s. Federalists in 1787-88 were a faction that supported the Constitution. Federalists in the 1790s became a political party that embodied Hamilton's financial plan and Washington's presidency. So, obviously, two different kinds of critters there. All right, Federalists. They're going to emerge from the Federalists of the pre-Constitution period by 1793. They believed in government by the upper class, so the best people, the educated. The rich had more leisure time to study the problems of governing. The rich enjoyed the advantages of intelligence, education, and culture. Uh, John Jay actually said those who own the country ought to govern it. Still feels kind of familiar. They just... They distrusted the common people, and they regarded democracy as mobocracy. They believed democracy was too important to be left to the people. They supported a strong central government, meaning they sought to maintain law and order and to crush any kind of democratic excesses like Shays Rebellion, the Whiskey Rebellion. They sought to protect life and property of the wealthy. They believe the federal government should encourage business, not interfere with it. So, Federalists were dominated by merchants, manufacturers, and shippers. Most live in urban areas of the eastern seaboard where commerce and manufacturing would flourish. They were also pro-British in foreign policy. So, foreign trade with Britain was key in Hamilton's plan. Many Federalists were mild loyalists who were based toward the former mother country. Then you have the Democratic Republicans, also known as the Jeffersonians. They advocated the rule of the people, government for the people. However, only by those who were literate enough to inform themselves should vote. They believed in the wisdom of the common people, the teachability of the masses. They appealed to the middle class, so like the yeoman farmers, the laborers, artisans, and some of your small shopkeepers. And they believed in states' rights. The government that governs best governs least So, the least amount of government possible. So, the bulk of the government power should be retained by the states, according to the Democratic Republicans. 
The national debt was a curse to future generations that should be paid off as quickly as possible. They were primarily agrarians, and they insisted on no special privileges for special classes, especially manufacturers. They saw farming as an ennobling profession. They believed in freedom of speech to expose tyranny, and they were pro-French instead of pro-British. They supported the liberal ideas of the French Revolution. Now, the irony of both of these is that Hamilton came from nothing. He lived in the Caribbean. His uh, mother and father never married. <clears throat> His mom was actually, I believe, a prostitute. Um, she died when he was very young. He ended up moving in with another family member who also died. Like I said, came from nothing and brought himself up. But he was for the rich, entitled class. While Jefferson, Jefferson came from elite, you know, an elite family. He came from money and he was for the middle class or, you know, teaching the common people. So it's just a little bit of irony there. Now, various Native American groups would repeatedly evaluate and adjust their alliances with Europeans, other tribes, and the United States, seeking to limit the migration of white settlers and maintain control of their tribal lands and, of course, their natural resources. Now, British alliances with the Native Americans contributed to the tensions between the U.S. and Britain. Again, that is that manifest destiny that we've been writing about for several weeks. So, to start off... The defeat of the, the Native Americans in the Old Northwest. The Iroquois Nation was forced onto reservations in New York and Pennsylvania after the Revolutionary War. They had allied with the British during the war. A lot of them will end up fleeing to Canada, <clears throat> where they would no longer really be a major threat to the United States. Now, in the Northwest and the Southwest borders, the Shawnee and the Miami tribes were increasingly hostile toward American settlers because, well, they're coming into their, their territory. Chief Little Turtle led the Western Confederacy that opposed American settlers' expansion westward, and they were supported by the British on the frontier. President Washington lost two armies in the Northwest in 1790 to 1791 to this Western Confederacy, and this represented the largest loss of U.S. forces at the hands of the Native Americans in U.S. history. General Mad Anthony Wayne finally led U.S. forces to victory in the Battle of <clears throat> Sorry. In the Battle of the Fallen Timbers. This is going to be in August of 1794, and it was the climactic battle. Uh, Native Americans were forced finally to abandon their British allies. The Treaty of Greenville in 1795 cleared two-thirds of Ohio and Indiana of Native American tribes, and Britain eventually abandoned its forts in the Old Northwest. In the Eastern Woodlands... The natives there now saw their lifestyle ruined by increased com competition for the fur trade, white settlement, and ruining of hunting grounds. They were forced westward and came into increased conflict with tribes west of the Mississippi. A movement to regenerate Native American society swept through the region and was led by certain Native American prophets. This movement eventually failed due to continued, excuse me, continued U.S. expansion. <clears throat> All right, so let's go into some foreign policy of the Federalist era. Now, the war between France and Britain resulting from the French Revolution presented challenges to the United States over issues of free trade and foreign policy, and it's going to foster a political disagreement. So let's talk about the impact of the French Revolution. 
Now, the significance of it, it was the single most important issue separating Federalists and Republicans in the 1790s. Americans were initially excited, especially the Jeffersonians. They saw the French Revolution as a second chapter of the American Revolution. In 1790, Americans supported France's war against Austria and Prussia. France is eventually going to proclaim itself a republic in 1792, similar to what the United States did. But there was the reign of terror, and this is going to lead to political conflict in the United States. <clears throat> King Louis XVI and his wife, Marie Antoinette, were beheaded. There's going to be thousands of aristocrats and anti-revolutionaries that are going to be executed by the Committee of Public Safety that are going to be led by Robespierre. And that's R-O-B-E-S-P-I-E-R-R-E. -E -E. Christianity will, re will be replaced by deism. Uh, the Jeffersonians will regret the bloodshed but felt it probably could not have been avoided. <clears throat> and the Federalists were frightened by the extent of the violence. They viewed the Jeffersonian masses with concern because of, you know, one of the things they talked about was that the, the you know, the, the river, or not the rivers, the roads ran with blood. You know, we're going around with heads on spikes, so... The French Revolution is going to lead to a world war. Britain was sucked into the conflict against France, and the U.S. had to decide which side to support when war spread to the Atlantic and the Caribbean. Now, Washington issued a neutrality proclamation in 1793. The United States was still obligated to France under the Franco-American Alliance of 1778. They, uh, we had pledged to protect the French West Indies from France's enemies. So the Jeffersonians favored honoring the alliance, and President Washington believed war should be avoided at all costs. The U.S. was militarily weak, and he believed that we should stay out of the war. Now, the actual neutrality proclamation announced our neutrality in the war between Britain and France. Now, he warned critics to be impartial to both France and Britain. Jeffersonians were enraged, especially by Washington not consulting Congress, and the Federalists supported this neutrality. Ironically, America and France benefited from the U.S. neutrality. So, America's neutrality meant it could still deliver foodstuffs to the West Indies. If the U.S. entered the war, the British Navy would blockade U.S. coasts and would cut off supplies the French relied on. So, but France did not officially ask the U.S. to honor the Franco-American Treaty. In 1794, we get the Jade Treaty, J-A-Y Treaty. Now, the significance of this is it temporarily eased the U.S. conflict with Britain, and it became the most important immediate cause for the formation of the Democratic Republican Party. Britain continued harassing American frontier settlers and the U.S. ships on the oceans. So, the British remained in their northern frontier posts on U.S. soil, and this constituted a violation of the Peace Treaty of 1783. They sold firearms and alcohol to Native Americans who attacked American settlers. The British Navy seized about 300 U.S. ships in the West Indies starting in 1793. And, in, you know, adding to that, there would be impressment. And this is where hundreds of, you know, of Americans were forced into service on British vessels. And others were those who would not, um, those who would not work, would be imprisoned. 
The Federalists were unwilling to go to war because the U.S. depended on 75% of its custom duties from the British imports. Jeffersonians argued that, argued that the U.S. should impose an embargo against Britain. Now, there's going to be some provisions for this, this Jay's Treaty. Britain is going to renew its pledge to remove posts from U.S. soil, as it had pledged to do in 1783. So, you know, this is just like a repeat. <clears throat> Britain agreed to pay damages for recent seizures of American ships, and, but they refused to guarantee against future maritime seizures and impressments or the inciting of Na Native Americans to further violence on the U.S. western frontier. So it was kind of a, sort of, kind of a useless treaty. Uh, the U.S. agreed to pay pre-revolution debts owed to British merchants. Again, something that we had already agreed to do. Now, because the Jeffersonians were so upset at all this, this is going to result in the creation of the Democratic Republican Party. The South felt betrayed that northern merchants would be paid damages for shipping, and the southern planters would be taxed to pay the pre-revolution debt. The war with Britain does get averted because Washington pushed for ratification of the treaty, realizing that war with Britain would be disastrous for the U.S., and the Senate narrowly approved the treaty in 1795. The United States government forged diplomatic initiatives aimed at dealing with the continued British and Spanish presence in North America. As the United States settlers migrated beyond the Appalachians and sought the free navigation of the Mississippi River. So we get the Pinckney Treaty, P-I-N-C-K-N-E-Y -E Treaty of 1795. And it's going to normalize the relations between the U.S. and Spain. Spain feared an Anglo-American alliance, and they sought to appease the U.S. Because Spain was a declining power in Europe at the time, and the position, their position was declining in the American frontier. Now, there's, go there's going to be some treaty, <clears throat> sorry, treaty provisions. Now, it will grant free navigation of the Mississippi River to the United States, including the right of deposit at the port of port city of New Orleans. Now remember that had been taken a while back and it was one of the main uh, main ways for trade for those who live in the southern part of the United States. And it also yielded a large area north of Florida that had been in dispute for over a decade. Uh, the 31st parallel was recognized as a legal border between the United States and Spanish Florida. George Washington's farewell address encouraged national unity as he cautioned against political factions and warned about the danger of permanent foreign alliances. So basically, we did the exact opposite. Now, this was given in 1797. Washington refused to accept a third term as president. He had reluctantly accepted a second term at the urging of his supporters. And again, he was unanimously reelected. Re Washington lost his nonpartisan standing when he supported the Federalist policies. And there's going to be partisan abuse from the Jeffersonian wing. It's going to be very significant. And he was exhausted physically and mentally with all of the uh, political bickering. <clears throat> uh, he is going to set the precedent for the two-term presidency. In his farewell address, he's going to warn against the evils of political parties, these permanent foreign alliances like the treaty with France. The Jeffersonians were angered at the as the speech seemed to declare United States hostility towards France. Isolationism is going to become the dominant U.S. foreign policy for about the next hundred years, and Washington kept the United States out of war 
with this, you know, this whole idea of, you know, the uh, no for the foreign policies. <clears throat> now, in review of Washington's precedents, the president relied on and consulted regularly with his cabinet. The, he also gained the right to choose his own cabinet, and this custom grew out of Congress's respect for Washington. The whole idea of the two-term office for president came from Washington, and after Chief Justice John Jay resigned, Washington went outside the Supreme Court to select a new chief justice. So now we need a new president. So the election of 1796, John Adams, the vice president, became the Federalist candidate, and Hamilton was too controversial to be a viable candidate for a variety of reasons. <clears throat> you know, one of those being that he put his affair in the newspaper, but... Chess says it's no big deal. Yeah. It happens. Just... Yeah. Who puts it in a newspaper? Anyway, moving on. Hannah, sorry if I made you jump with that. Uh, Chaz is reciting Hamilton. Anyway, <laughs> the Democratic Republicans gathered around Thomas Jefferson. They decried the crushing of the Whiskey Rebellion and the Jay Treaty. Adams defeated Jefferson, uh, Jefferson 71 to 68 in the Electoral College. So, you know, he kind of squeaked by on that one. Jefferson, as the runner-up, became the vice president because that makes so much sense. Let's have the person that ran against me be my vice president in case anything happens. Moving along. The quasi-war against France. This is going to run from 1798 to 1800. The French Directory government is going to condemn the Jay Treaty and attack American shipping. They saw it as an initial, st initial step toward a U.S. U.S. alliance with Britain. They also saw it as a flagrant violation of the Franco-American Treaty of 1778. French warships are going to seize around 300 U.S. merchant vessels by the mid-1797. Mid France is also going to refuse to receive America's newly appointed envoy. <clears throat> The XYZ Affair of 1797. President Adams is going to send a send U.S. delegation to Paris in 1797. The delegates were secretly approach, approached by three French agents known only as X, Y, and Z. The French agents demanded a large loan and a bribe of $250,000 for the privilege of talking to the French foreign minister, Talleyrand, T-A-L-L-E-Y-R-A-N-D. The U.S. delegates... Basically, million for defense, not one cent for tribute. I don't even know what that was. It looks like somebody turned something in. Yep. <clears throat> Moving right along. So, the negotiations broke down because, I mean, a, a loan and a bribe. I mean, come on. And then we're going to get this war hysteria that's going to sweep across the United States. So, there will be undeclared naval warfare with the French from 1798 to 1800. Uh, the U.S. war preparations were set in motion, so we get the Navy Department at the cabinet level being created. The three-ship Navy was expanded. Uh, we also get the Marine Corps established, and an army of 10,000 men were authorized, though not fully raised. <clears throat> Washington was the top general, but gave active command to Hamilton. Adams suspended all trade with France and authorized American ships to capture armed 
French vessels. The undeclared hostilities ensued for about two and a half years, and they fought principally in the West Indies. The U.S. Navy and there were privateers captured over 80 French armed ships, and there would be several hundred U.S. merchantmen who were lost <coughs> sorry, to the French. And it ended up being... Uh, Basically, everyone saw that there would be a full-blown war imminent, and Adams sought to keep the U.S. out of war as his predecessor had. Now, Adams' finest moment of his presidency was the Convention of 1800. France became eager to negotiate a peace with the U.S. as they did want another enemy allied with Britain during the Napoleonic War. So, basically, they have enough issues. Uh, Adams is going to appoint a new foreign minister to France in order to negotiate a peace. Uh, many of the Americans were shocked in light of the XYZ affair that we're going to try and do this, you know, whole mess again. The Hamiltonian high federalists are enraged at this. Uh, they sought military glory in war against France. And the Jeffersonians and the moderate federalists favored one last try for peace. So again, we're, we're divided in 1800, the U.S. negotiated with Napoleon, who was bent on European conquest. So we get the Convention of 1800. France agreed to end the 22-year Franco-American alliance with the United States, and the United States agreed to pay the damage claims of American shippers who had been attacked by French ships. Now, the significance of all this is, well, for one, a major war was avoided. If the war had occurred, Napoleon would not have sold the Louisiana Purchase to the U.S. three years later. So, you know, we'd still be a fairly small nation. And the other half would be, like, French. <clears throat> <coughs> so we get the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798. Now, the purpose of these were the Federalists passed a series of oppressive laws in 1798 to reduce the influence of Jeffersonians and silence anti-war opposition. So, the Alien Acts. These constituted an attack on pro-Jeffersonian aliens. Most immigrants lacked wealth and were welcomed by the Jeffersonians. They were hated by the Federalists who did not want these immigrants voting in the U.S. The law raised residence requirements for U.S. citizenship from five years to 14 years. And the president could deport anyone they, de they deemed dangerous, any of these foreigners. The laws in some ways seemed reasonable. Some foreign agitators were coming to the U.S., like, you know, those who tried to enlist America to support France, and many immigrants from France sought anti-British policies. The Alien Acts were never enforced, but some frightened foreigners well, specifically foreign agitators, would leave the country because they were afraid of what would happen. Then the Sedition Act. Anyone who impeded government policies or falsely criticized its officials, including the president, would be liable to heavy fines and possible imprisonment. This was a direct violation of the First Amendment to the Constitution. The Federalist-controlled Supreme Court was not interested in declaring it unconstitutional, even though it was their job. Two, or sorry, ten Jeffersonian newspaper editors were brought to trial and convicted. Now, the law did expire in 1801, the day before Adams left office. This demonstrated the dubious intentions of the bill. Of the bill. If a Federalist was not elected in 1800, Republicans wouldn't have the Sedition Act to prosecute Federalists. So it was a, you know, a, a one-sided little act here. 
Now, there's going to be popular support for alien, alien and sedition acts. It's going to be very significant. The anti-French hysteria was played into, you know, by the by those of, by the Federalists, and the largest ever Federalist victory occurred in 1798-99 with the congressional elections. Then we get the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions of 1798. Democratic Republicans believe the Alien and Sedition Acts were unconstitutional, and that's because they were. The process of deciding the constitutionality of federal laws was not yet defined in the Constitution. So, you know, Marbury v. Madison had not happened yet. And that's why that one's so significant. <clears throat> uh, Jefferson and Madison, Madison secretly created a seri series of resolutions and asked Vice President... Jefferson was in an awkward position as he feared prosecution from the Sedition Act. Now, the premise, states had the right to nullify, nullify laws passed by Congress that were deemed unconstitutional. That was not to break up the Union, but to preserve it by protecting the civil liberties of the people. They were largely uh, cam campaign documents seeking to defeat the Federalists in the 1798 midterm elections. Okay, so the compact theory. Now, this was popular among the 17th century English political philosophers like John Locke. The 13 sovereign states created the federal government and had entered a compact. This means that the national government was an agent or creation, or creation, yeah, a creation of the states. So nullification. Individual states were the final judges of whether a federal law was constitutional. It's like the, the states made it, so therefore they could argue against it. Now, the result, no other states passed the resolutions. The Federalists argued that people, not the states, made the original compact, and the Federalists argued the Supreme Court, not the states, could nullify the laws. But the significance of this was ideas were later used by Southerners to support nullification and ultimately succession prior to the Civil War. Okay, so the Jefferson or Jeffersonian or the Jefferson Revolution of 1800 <clears throat> or the election of 1800. Now, the Federalist handicaps. The Federalist split over going to war with France with the biggest reason for Adam, sorry, was the biggest reason for Adam's defeat. Hamilton and the high Federalists openly broke from Adams for his refusal to engage a full-blown war against France. The Alien and Sedition Acts became a liability. Federalists had swelled <clears throat> the debt in preparation for war with France, so there would be new taxes, like a, like a stamp tax that were levied to pay the cost. And it seems like, well, didn't we just go to war for this? I feel like this is a repeat. It's like a... It's like we're re-binge-watching. Anyway. And all those military preparations that we did were now, you know, unnecessary. <clears throat> Federalist mudslinging accused Jefferson of being an atheist, and actually he was a deist. His Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom angered the Orthodox clergy, especially in the Congressionalist and Federalist New England, uh, of robbing a widow and her children of a trust fund, and of fathering mulatto children by his own slave woman. In 1998, genetic tests uh, actually proved that Jefferson had fathered at least one child from his slave mistress, Sally Hemings. Uh, but the real question is, was she really a mistress when you have that, that power dynamic there? I'll let, I'll let you be the judge of that. <clears throat> All right. Oh, yeah, and the age dynamic. Because originally, Sally Hemings was his daughter's, like, playmate. 
just put that one in perspective for you. All right, Jefferson is going to defeat Adams 73 to 65, so a little bit more significant than, than the last one. Uh, most of Jefferson's support came from the South and the West, where universal manhood suffrage had been adopted. New York was the key. The Republican Aaron Burr's run for vice presidency narrow, uh, narrowly turned New York towards Jefferson. Uh, Jefferson tied with Burr for electoral votes. The House of Representatives had to break the deadlock. Federalists preferred Burr as they hated Jefferson. Uh, but eventually, a few anti-Burr Federalists were swayed by Hamilton to refrain from voting and Jefferson became president. Burr now obviously hated Hamilton because, again, he stepped in his way of, you know, future prosperity. Now, the significance of this was a peaceful change of power was revolutionary. The transfer of power was on a basis of an election that all parties accepted, and Britain would not achieve the same stature for another generation. Now, granted, it wasn't completely peaceful because, you know, Burr did take Hamilton out and shoot him. But I digress. <clears throat> the Federalist Legacy. Hamilton's financial plan established the, na the nation's financial foundation. Washington established important precedents for the presidency. The Federalists kept the United States out of war. Uh, they preserved democratic gains of the revolution and oversaw the creation of a viable republic. The opposition party, the Jeffersonians, resulted in the creation of a two-party system. And the westward expansion, well, we know where that got us. Everywhere. All right. <clears throat> now, things to remember overall of the Federalist era. Bill of Rights, 1791. The Judiciary Act of 1789. Hamilton's Financial Plan. The French Revolution. The Neutrality Proclamation of 1793. The Jay Treaty of 1795. The Election of 1796. The XYZ of 1797. The Quasi War of 1798 through 1800, the Alien Sedition Acts of 1798, the Treaty of Grenville, and the Revolution of 1800. Now, I will be getting the terms to know up for you, and we will take a look at these essay questions later. One of them that you might want to start thinking on, thinking on, though, is to analyze the factors that led to the creation of a two-party system during the 1790s. That kind of covers this entire chapter, to be honest. 